Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. As I said, the psalm has a context in 1 Samuel chapter 19. I encourage you this week to read 1 Samuel 19 to get the fuller view of what's going on behind this psalm. But all the psalms we've studied this summer, all through the 50s, 51 to 59, next week we'll see 60, they are kind of like the playlist of what happens in the second half of 1 Samuel. They're the background emotions that David experiences. And this psalm breaks down very simply from verses 1 to 10. It's a cry for deliverance. And verses 11 to 17, it's a request and it's a rationale for his deliverance. But what we need to see when we study God's word is not just the exegetical outline of a passage, but we actually need to see how by seeing this verse through the lens of Jesus, it actually intends to shape you. And when you read Psalm 59, and as I looked at it, and I pushed away from my desk and just began to read it, Lord, what are you doing in me in this psalm? What began to percolate is that he helped me realize that there are certain skills in my life that I need to learn in order to grow in my relationship with him, in order to rest in his finished work for me. The soft skills of Christian discipleship are sometimes the hardest ones for us to learn. It is easy for me as a pastor to teach you how to open God's word, how to observe, interpret, and apply what his word says, but that is often not where you struggle the most. Do you know the term hard skills and soft skills? You've heard those terms before? Yeah, some of you at work, you can, I can see. You, yeah, your company has taught you about hard skills and soft skills. Soft skills are those skills that help you get along with others and navigate challenges. If you're a note taker, notice that number one is soft skills. They are the skills that help you get along with others and navigate challenges. Let me explain what I mean. Hard skills in life are those skills that get you a job, but the soft skills are what helps you keep that job. If you're an engineer, for example, the hard skills are knowing how to design the systems, doing the math, doing the CAD work, deliverables for your client, but it's the soft skills of working with the client, of your interactions in the office, of fostering a team player mentality that actually allows people to say, we love this person on our team. It's the soft skills. They are the skills that help you to get along with others and to navigate challenges. Or in marriage, the hard skills of marriage, or if you're a roommate, or, or, you know, the uh, the hard skills if you're single, or, or how do you keep your house clean? When do you do the laundry? What's the rhythm of who does the dishes? These are hard skills. But the soft skills are what you do early in the morning when you're in a bad mood and you love your family even though you don't feel great and you sacrifice for them even though it's inconvenient for you. Those are the soft skills. And it's not the hard skills that people outside the church are examining the church by. You can ace the test with flying colors. Do you come to worship? Great. Are you a good tipper at restaurants around town? Wonderful. Do you serve at RUF? Wonderful. We love it. And I hope all of you do. Those are hard skills. You need to know them. But it's the fact that in your interpersonal relationships, some of us honestly kind of act like jerks. At work, you're always trying to win 
and you're not working for your employer in such a way that people say, I want this person on my project next time we have one. And David introduces us to at least two soft skills in this text. Because one of the greatest strengths of us as believers to grow in our soft skills is to recognize that we have to be intensely aware of God's presence every day of our life and also become increasingly self-aware. And so notice how David does that in this psalm. David is backed up into a corner in his house where he is trying to navigate a very serious challenge. And what is the first thing he does? He's God-aware. The first soft skill he demonstrates is prayer, number one. Look, he cries out in verses one and two, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Is this the first place you go whenever your back is up against a wall? Then he gives a context for his need in verse three. For behold, they lie in wait for me. Fierce men stir up strife against me. And then he calls God to action based upon God's character. He, David calls God to action based upon God's character in verses four to six. Awake, come to meet me and see you, O Lord, God of Sabaoth, of the hosts, of the armies of the arrayed might. You have all the power. Would you come and rescue me? Rouse yourself. And here, this is King David looking back upon this many years later when he's the king of Israel. Rouse yourself, not just against Saul and his men, but now David as the king is saying, rouse yourself against all the nations of the world. Show yourself to be the one true God. I don't know where the first place is that you go to solve the problems when your back is up against a wall, but I do know my own heart. And I know from talking to many of you about our hearts together, our issue is not that we worship other gods, other religions. Our issue is that we have subtly begun to worship an ancient god called Hestia, which is the god of hearth and home, the firstborn of Kronos and Ray in ancient Greek mythology. Their oldest child was the god of comfort, of hearth and home, of a beautiful family, of a wonderful house. And one of the reasons you moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and one of the reasons you enjoy living in Tulsa is because of the quality of life and how easy it is for us whenever our backs are up against the wall, the first thing we grab is what? Our wallet. And isn't it interesting that in your family tensions, as in mine, sometimes the hard skills like writing checks for certain things, spending money on certain issues. Sometimes it's actually those hard skills and it's the place we go in our worship ever so subtly of the God Hestia, the God of hearth and home, that actually make our family tensions worse. Now, I don't know if you've seen that in your life, but I wonder if sometimes it's the hard skills that you demonstrate without the soft skills that you need to navigate the challenges that actually are one of the places you need to grow in your Christian discipleship. The hard skills often get in the 
way. And here, David, when his back is up against the wall, what's the first thing he does? He prays. Now, I know that it's very simple. It is not simplistic. It is simple. And it's hard. Do you cry out to him? Do you tell him your context? Do you call God to action based upon his character? David invites us to do that in this psalm. Because it's not only the prayer of soft skills that we need to learn, how to be better prayers, how to go to him whenever our back is up against a wall, to not first reach for our money or for the comfort of our home, but to actually go to him in prayer, Lord, I need you, give me wisdom. But secondly, the soft skill of learning how to use our words. Number two, to use words that are, first of all, A, true. Notice in verse 3, he says, For behold, they lie and wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. They talk about me. They use words about me that are not true. They prowl around. It's interesting to me that when Paul is talking about the beauty of the church in Ephesians chapter 4, It's interesting to me that Paul talks about the way that we use our mouths. He says in 4.15 of Ephesians, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And later he says, having put away falsehood, each one of you should speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Friends, we are to speak words that are true because words these days are cheap. <laughs> Not only are they, should we speak words that are true, but we should speak words that are be few. Notice they are bellowing with their mouths, verse 7. They're howling like dogs, David describes them. How easy it is on social media just to send out a tweet, just to post something on Facebook. And we devalue the value of words. If God is the living word in Christ, shouldn't also our use of words be more highly valued as Christians? Our words should be true. Our words also should be few. And see, our words should be kind. Look at verse 7 with swords in their lips. That's a metaphor for sharp, being sharp-tongued, being cynical or cutting with our words. They should be kind. And then notice these men, it's as though th- this psalm could be written today. Who they think will hear us on social media? We're totally anonymous. We'll say whatever we want. We'll stir up strife. But as Christians, our words should be true. They should be few. They should be kind. And they should be wise. And it's the soft skills of prayer and our use of words that are to help guide us whenever we have to navigate difficult challenges here. And it's not only the soft skills that we need to learn, but for some of you, listen, you're way past soft skills. You're in survival skill zone. And so point two is you have to learn survival skills. Verses 11 through 17, 
speaks to real survival skills. David said, I had the opportunity to kill the king. And David says, kill them not. Do not take their life, lest my people forget. A survival skill is a skill that helps you survive life-threatening situations. And here, King David's life is threatened. He's trapped in his own home, having to escape out a window. And he says, Lord, even though I had the opportunity to relent against the king, even though I had the opportunity to take his life, even though I was in the cave with him and I cut the corner of his robe off, I will not commit sin against the Lord's anointed. King Saul was threatened by David. And the irony of of this section of the Psalter in reading the second half of 1 Samuel is that who is the one who's insecure? It's the king who should be the most secure in his calling. But David, who was the one who was on the run, was confident in his calling before the Lord. And King Saul, who had the security of the kingship, was insecure because he was so threatened by this young shepherd boy for the throne that even when his life was at stake, David, with stunning integrity, didn't take his life. And some of you, you think, well, listen, that's that's interesting, Blake. I'm not trapped in my house. I'm not not facing survival. And I just want to say to you, don't be so fast to say that. The days are different than they used to be years ago. Some of you this week were invited by the uh, uh, school district where your kids go to school and the FBI to a conversation. Some of you in the room were part of that. And the FBI met with parents and teachers. Actually, they met with the administrators of a local school district. And when they met with the administrators and teachers of a local school district to talk about sextortion, online extortion of children, the parents and the teachers and the administrators said, this information is so important, we want every parent to hear it. And so they invited parents to this gathering with the FBI. And the FBI began to discuss what it's like for people to actually be in your home without you knowing it, knocking on the doors of your children through their devices. Now, I don't say that to scare you. I just say it's just a fact that the internet has changed so much since the 2000s, whenever we began to have the internet in our home. And John Sheldon, who is the vice president for exploited, the Ex- Exploited Children Division in the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children said, sexual predators have found a way to extort children in the privacy of their own homes. They don't need a key to get in, just a device connected to the internet. They secretly coerce their underage victims to produce sexual images or to give them money. And at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, we see the devastation and the impact of these crimes every day. And there are people in our community who don't just face sexual predators through the devices. There are people who are in sex trafficking rings that are very real and you would not know them. You'd be shocked to know who's in those. And I just want to say, if you hear me or you're in this room and you're caught in that, would you please for the freedom to confess it and to let us know how we can help you? You're not confessing anything you've done wrong. You're letting us in so we can help you. There is hope. 
David, when he was trapped by King Saul, when he was on the run, he did everything he could to alert the authorities. He let them know. But the system was stacked up against King David, and he had no way to get help. And notice what King David did in the midst of his injustice, number one, though he tried to let the authorities know, though he tried to go through the right channels, King David ultimately left justice to the Lord. Because King David knew that even though through the systems of justice in this world, if I'm not able to find rest from the king's pursuit of my life, I know one day the true king will judge them. Notice, he says in verse 13, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God who rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. And friends, some of you need to learn the soft skills of Christian discipleship, and some of you have the real need to just survive. And this is not theoretical. Some of you work with people who are trying to survive in the world now. Some of you lead organizations that rescue people out of the sex trafficking industry. Some of you are just trying to survive. And I just want to say, especially uh, to you teenagers, that one of the most important things that you can do in your young life is to lean in to the Christian community of the church and of your mom and dad. And parents, I want to say to you that I was listening to a, psychi- a secular psychiatrist not long ago who was talking about the ages of 13 through 18 and the transitions that they go through. And he said that they naturally are transitioning toward independence of mom and dad. And we see this as Christians, of course, we see the effects of the fall only exacerbate that notion as they grow to, toward graduation. They want more and more freedom from, and that is a natural thing that they want. Sin compounds that both by the parent and the child makes sometimes things get real tense in the house. But what the psychiatrist was saying was that there are experiments that have been done where parents have told their children with the exact same words and intonation, one thing, and the child, the teenager did not hear it. But a friend's parent said the exact same thing, exact same words, exact same intonation, and the child thought it was the best news they'd ever heard. And what we need together for us to survive in this world is we need community. And I'm begging of you as a father of four children, my children need to hear you say things to them about the gospel that they, as great as they are, are sometimes tone deaf to the sound of my voice and to the sound of my wife's. And your children need me and Lauren and everybody in this room to help us become the kind of community we need to be for each other. That's how we survive as a church in the world today. We are continually pouring over our covenant children the good news of the gospel from a thousand different voices. Even if we use the same intonation and the same word choices, they will hear it sometimes better from your friends and they will hear it from you. And so therefore, what does that mean? It means you better be in a community group. (laughs) It means you better transition from worship being individualistic to being communal in nature. It means it takes a village. Because notice what he says in verse 11b. He says, kill them not. This speaks to his injustice. Lest my people forget 
David here is assuming that he is a part of a covenant people. And years later, writing the psalm, reflecting back as the king of Israel, they are his people that he's to govern. But he assumes that he is a part of a people of God, and so also we ought to as well. As much as you consider your individual time with the Lord to be so important as it is in your reading God's word and studying his word and memorizing his word, equally important, dare I say, is your communal time with God's people under his word. And as we grow to both understand how we develop soft skills, how to get along with others and navigate challenges, and to navigate very real survival skills in the face of injustice and in the face of our isolation that should call us to lean in to community. Verse 11b, we are the people We, as God's people, have an opportunity to truly be something beautiful for our family and for this community. Now, as I close, let me just apply this one more way. The strength of your life is not your resourcefulness. It is Christ's resourcefulness. Because it is Christ who is the window through which you escape from sin and death, which has trapped you. He became the window. He gave his life on the cross for you so that you might escape through his body on the tree, which was sacrificed for you so that you might have a way to escape. So that you can pray to your strength, who is a person, the Lord Jesus. And that we don't grow by programs, we we grow by our personal relationship with Christ and His body. And so we're able to pray our request. We're able to pray our rationale. He prays His request in verse 11. He prays His rationale in verses 12 and 13. He prays His resolution. He was resolved in verses 16 to 17. But I will sing of your strength, O Lord. For you have been to me a high place, a fortress, as it's translated from the Hebrew into the English in the ESV, a refuge in the day of my distress, because you are the God who shows me your steadfast, kehesed love. Psalm 59 points us to Jesus. This was the psalm that the exiles prayed together when they were taken from Judah into captivity in Babylon. This was the psalm that the Jews pray today, the Amichdah. They pray three times a day, Psalm 57, verse 17. They prayed the psalm. This was the psalm they prayed when they returned from exile. The 42,000 returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and the temple. They prayed, Lord, deliver us. We will sing. You are our strength, not our own resourcefulness. And this is the psalm we can imagine Jesus himself praying as he goes to the cross as the soldiers and the Sadducees and the religious looked at Jesus and said, if you just get off the cross, we'll believe in you. You say you're the son of God? Climb down. Behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. 
Can you hear your Savior praying that? For no fault of mine, they run and make ready a cross. So friends, as you come to the table this morning, would you ask the Lord to help you grow in those soft skills that allow you to get along with others and to navigate challenges and to teach you the survival skills we need in a world full of injustice, in a world that pushes us to isolation, to leave justice to the Lord ultimately when the channels of justice in our world seem to run short and to lean into community amidst your isolation knowing that King Jesus invites us to be one body together. Amen? Amen. Let's prepare for the table.